Hello, and welcome to The Yap, the podcast designed by a young artist for young artists. We bring you interviews with professionals in the business, including other young artists, to provide you with helpful information as you pursue a career in opera and to open up dialogue about the important issues our industry faces. On today's show, we interview Rochelle Yonk, a wonderful coach and conductor and the founder of Bel Canto Bootcamp, an online course that teaches the elements of bel canto singing and Italian style, all based on Bacay's Metodo di Canto. I've known Rochelle for several years now as a coach, and she always has both great knowledge and wisdom to impart. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Hi, Rochelle. Welcome to The Yap. Thank you, Emily. It's great to be here. I just wanted to start, well, I mean, I know you from Teatro Nuovo. That's how I first started working with you, and then I've been coaching with you since. But you do a lot of things. You're on faculty at Westminster Fire College, and um, you work at Palm Beach Opera, the Young Artist Program, and you're a music director now for Baltimore Concert Opera. Yes, many, many irons in the fire, as they say. Yes. And then now, now that we're all in quarantine and none of that other stuff is happening, right? So you're start, you've started this um, Bel Canto boot camp and the Vakai project. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But uh, first, I just wanted to ask you how you got into opera and opera coaching, because I know your education was first in, you know, just piano. Correct. Any coaches. Correct. Yes. Um, I'm from South Africa originally and, and studied uh, piano and musicology at the University of Stellenbosch. And um, during that time in South Africa, I'm not sure exactly to what extent it has changed now, but there was not really the opportunity to do collaborative piano as we know it in the States. Uh, you know, these days in, in the States, you can actually specialize in opera coaching um, beyond just collaborative piano. So, but that was not something available. And I also didn't know yet that how much I loved singers because I grew up with a pianist mother. So um, I really went to school to be a pianist and then, like very early on, there were singers looking for people to play for their voice lessons and mm. and so on. And I'm a good sight reader. So I was, oh, this sounds like fun. And so did a lifelong love affair with singers really start because for the first time I was able to really make music with other people. You know, like pianists grow up very lonely lives like we spend a lot of time just practicing on our own and it's not really so much part of our lives as young pianists to be able to play uh with other people so to me that was amazing and i was like this is the coolest thing ever i can make music and i can be with other people and i don't have to be just alone with the piano (laughs) and i always loved language and I'm a little bit of a dramatic person. I think people think <laughs> about me, especially as a musician. I love the drama of music, and I and I love theater, and I love language. So it was kind of a perfect storm. All of a sudden, this entire world opened up for me. And um, I would like to say that I continued to practice the piano as much as I should have. But if my piano teacher was here, he'd be like, yeah, that was really the end of any possibility of you becoming a better pianist. Because <laughs> I basically spent all of my time playing Dichterliebe and enjoying working with singers. And so that is really how it's, how my love affair with them started. And then I, st- um, when I was a, a 
postgraduate uh, uh, student in South Africa, uh, the company, the opera company in Cape Town, now called Cape Town Opera, was looking for a young rehearsal pianist coach. And um, they called my school and I went to audition because I thought it would be interesting. But I never in a million years thought I would I would get the job because I had no experience in opera really beyond, you know, playing Devian in Ontario and like the famous arias uh, for people in school. Um, and then I got offered the job and I was, oh, my God, now what? I thought I was just going to continue studying and, you know, playing recitals with singers. And that is really then how I started. I really started working, knowing almost nothing about opera and had a fantastic group of singers um, in Cape Town who were all seasoned professionals and who suffered through their coachings with me. I remember I remember singers walking in the, in the studio and I would have practiced so hard like to play Tosca because I would have to coach Scarpia, but I didn't really know Tosca and I didn't really know what to tell a seasoned baritone about singing Scarpia. And I remember his fantastic baritone, Lawrence Foley, who was singing Scarpia and I said to him, I was like, Mr. Foley, I, I, I know that I'm on the schedule and that I'm supposed to coach you like singing Scarpia, but I practiced as long as much as I could to learn Tosca, but I don't really know what to tell you. And he would be like, don't worry, I'm going to teach you how Tosca goes. <laughs> and and so like singers in my young days as a pianist did really amazing things for me in like helping me learn the repertoire and continuing to help me learn about the voice. So what do you think what do you think the biggest learning curve was just going from being a concert pianist to being a coach? Absolutely repertoire. Mm-hmm. Like, like really just um, because I worked with very, very good uh, voice teachers um, at Stellenbosch. Um, so I learned a lot from playing in the studios about voice and, and I was always into language. Um, but starting as a young pianist in, in the opera house, I just had so much repertoire to learn. And I, I felt like my first two years, I basically never slept. I felt that I was always like learning another Mozart opera's recitatives, um, but it was also fun. Do you feel like the the stylistic aspect of it too was the was the challenge with the repertoire, just the recitative and the conventions of opera more? Or yeah, I would say that kind of came bit by bit. You know, as I as I worked with different conductors whom I learned different things from, and then when I came to the states. Um, you know, that you keep on learning and my knowledge of historical performance practice kind of grew with all the different people that I met. And then I started to get really interested in Italian style and I started to read a lot about it. And so then, you know, there's a lot that you have to learn from really just studying. And and it's interesting, there are lots of people who are kind of experts in this field who didn't study it in school, kind of like me. You know, there, there are lots of... Um, us who kind of like find our niche in the opera market um, later on and we're long out of school and then we really start that education process for ourselves and I think that happens for singers as well you know you're not very often like as a young singer you're not exactly clear yet on really what your niche is going to be where your interest lies but you discover it and then you have to keep on discovering people you're going to learn from yeah absolutely I mean this uh 
you know, this podcast is focused on young artists and sort of the that step from university to professional life. And I think so much of that is just finding your people and learning from them more than it is about, um, you know, a lot of what you learn in school is very useful, but until you're like applying it, it's sort of neither here nor there. Yeah, it's a super it's a super hard time I think in a young singer's life from many perspectives from a structured perspective um, you know when you're in school mostly you're told what you have to learn and then you learn it and you pay for it um, but then when you leave school I think um, it doesn't take very long for singers to to understand how much more they have to learn and then they have to both like find the money to learn it make the structure themselves, find the people they're going to learn it from. It's like, you know, like creating like a continuation of education for yourself while also trying to pay your rent and your school loans. That's a very, very hard time, I think, for a young singer. And, and you know, you know, we do what we can uh, to help to help support singers during this time. And that is a big part of what we're trying to do at Belcanto Bootcamp is is provide not only what I call like filling in the gaps, you know, it's like trying to figure out what the singers in our program has learned and what it is they are lacking, what do they still need to learn, what interests them that they don't have enough background information about, but also to create community and because it brings structure the way we have structured the program, you are kind of getting a daily post to help you stay uh, motivated to practice. It gives you some ideas. And then the community um, gives you some other people who are doing the same thing. So you don't feel so lonely because I think that a lot of young singers go through that, right? You don't have, there's no, nobody's going to the lunch hall with you and talking about what happened in the class. And, and all of a sudden you're kind of, like on your own in the big city of New York, right? Yeah, we're back to where it's like what you said about being a, a pianist used to spend all this, pianists are used to spending all this time by themselves, but like singers, most of our, we got into it and we just started doing it with other singers, you know, so we're used to having that camaraderie. So yes. it's really nice. Um, you know, I'm full disclosure, I'm, I'm part of the Vakai project. I'm taking part in it. I'm, um, participating and it's been so nice just to have that community again and just to feel like you're talking about singing with other singers again while we're in this quarantine um yeah it's an amazing thing let's jump into that um and talking for people who don't know what it is um mm -hmm. and like you said it, it's been great to provide structure which is something especially now is very lacking a lot of us don't even know you know like what we should be practicing because we're not practicing for a, an audition or a role or anything um, so yeah, tell me about how it started, like what made you think to do it and then what exactly it is for people who might not know. Right. Um, so it kind of started, it started right at the beginning of quarantine. Um, so as you, you know, like I work with Derek Goff a lot, a young coach pianist who just finished his two years at the Met, uh, Met Lindemann program. And we work together a lot and we have a lot of singers who work with us and right at the start we were talking about it and uh, he said oh Robin Lamp said how sad is it that we don't have the Vakai project because about three years ago we had a kind of version of this just during the summer every week we worked on a different lesson but it was very kind of you know it was just like an extra thing for people to do in the summer 
And I said, well, what the hell? Why don't we do it? Why don't we launch like another Vakai project? And so we, we really started it as a way to engage like the singer community and most particularly our community, right? Because I really felt that the singers who work with me on a regular basis are going to be cut off from me, cut off from each other, cut off from the opera world. And I was like, well, maybe this is something that we can do. And so I put on Facebook, you know, who would be interested and people were were everybody who liked it and said, I want to do it, we made the group and people joined it. And then we made it an open group, so they invited people. And, and the next minute we were like, oh my God, there are 500 members in this group and most of them I don't know. And then there were 700 and then there were 800. And now there are more than 1,300. Wow. And it became not only singers, there were lots of teachers, there were coaches, there were people who just love opera, there were conductors. And um, so very early on, people, we started to get comments of saying like, oh, please don't stop this uh, when we're done with working through Vakai. So we are basically working through the Vakai lessons and discussing topics as, as it arises. And so we started to think what we would do in the summer. It became clear pretty quickly that many people were not really actively engaged in the program because it was emotionally hard, I think, for many people to sing. Um, and it, started, it started right in the beginning. Yeah, and it started right in the beginning, yeah. you know. And uh, so people were kind of like stopping and starting. And then we decided that, that the best thing we do would be to run like a kind of intensive, interactive version of the program again in the summer. And that is what we are doing now. Um, so at that point, we were just called like the Vakai Project. And we realized then that we might want to do other things like as our community grew because we don't want it, you know, I keep on saying, I don't want this project to die when we have a vaccine for COVID. That would be so sad if we, you know, all these people met each other and started to work together and then it comes to an end when COVID comes to an end. So that is when we then launched and incorporated the name Belcanto Bootcamp, uh, which has now become the umbrella organization that is presenting the Vakai project. And we are planning to continue it in the fall, probably running a version of the, the Vakai project again, and then having other projects for people who have already done Vakai. There are currently 333 singers, coaches, teachers and conductors involved in the project from all over the world, um, all over the Americas, uh, Spain, Portugal, Philippines, um, everywhere to China, to South Africa, to Botswana. So the community is large and we work in subgroups de um, depending on the singer's level. So we have everything from non-vocational amateur singers all the way to professional singers who sing at the Metropolitan Opera. So we work and we have different mentors helping singers kind of um, when they have questions, when they post videos of themselves practicing, it's like, oh, why don't you try this? And it's been great for me to see how supportive singers are of each other and how much they learn from from like practicing together, kind of like it is in school, and that you that you somehow just don't have when you turn that corner and you you enter the the work market. Yeah, um, yeah. I think one of the cool things is seeing the so people have been posting videos of themselves working on the exercises uh, either in Vakai or this, the other exercises that you've um, 
given. And it's just really, it's really great to just see other singers processes. Cause I feel like we so rarely see that and like uh, allow ourselves to share our own process and, um, so we're all we're all like in in the room by ourselves working on the same things, you know. Right. I I had early on a, a couple of weeks ago very interesting conversation with somebody saying it's hard to be so it it was hard for her to become so vulnerable in the practice part of it because singers tend to hide that part of themselves and you know we're more used to being vulnerable on stage and it really kind of made me think. Right. I was that is so backwards we should be able to be vulnerable in learning our craft in continuing to look at what we can get better at because you are vulnerable when you are facing uh, challenges of certain things that you need to improve that is a very vulnerable state and if you can be vulnerable in working on your skills then you can be really strong in performance you know and I think that for me that is that has been the great thing and I'm a I'm a as you know big lover of sports and and sports people are very open about how they improve their techniques and stuff and then they play the game right with the technique that they have and and I'm really trying to make that kind of community to say you know when you're saying that you're working on your chest voice that doesn't make you a weak singer. That makes you like a powerful singer. And and everybody, I think, is experiencing it that way. And I really, it's absolutely my dream that we can that we can take this moment and take it with us, so that singers will not be so cut off from each other again. It's weird, right? That in a time when we are like physically cut off from each other. We have found this online community that is so strong and supportive of each other. Um, it would be sad if COVID ends and we all go back to sitting in boxes in our homes and trying to be singers and, and be effective um, in getting better and cut ourselves off from, from people and from each other again. So that's really our, our big goal. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I feel like even just like personally, um, I find that old friends have reached out to me and people are just so much more willing to have a phone conversation and just like, and just catch up with somebody they haven't talked to in years. And yeah, I hope we don't lose that same sense. I don't know what it is about about this time that's made it easier for people to maybe be more vulnerable even, but I think it's really a positive thing for our community especially as musicians. I, I just, I couldn't agree more. And I really feel, I feel strongly that in, in sharing, in this shared experience, I feel like people are becoming stronger singers. They are mm -hmm. growing together um, and, and that the support of the community is really bolstering their efforts. They're not so afraid of like trying something new because there is somebody on the other side of the line being like, that sounds great. Oh, I have this problem as well. I do this. Oh, Pauline Viardot in like page four, I just saw like in the professional group, uh, we were talking about a specific thing and somebody was like, oh, I cannot post like a picture of it. But if you look at the Pauline Viardot exercises on page four, there's an exercise that really helps me. And everybody's like, yes, that's a fantastic idea. That exercise helps me as well. And like what in like pre-COVID times that was, <laughs> I don't know, you had to like pull out your checkbook and leave a check on one coach or one voice teacher's piano and you would like hope that you could get all the answers that you need. And I feel like we have 
in in a large community you have you have options of of getting different viewpoints people approach problems in slightly different ways and yeah it's it's been fun it's been a great experience for me yeah um do you feel like do you see anything that might inhibit this from continuing once we have a vaccine and things start to go I mean, the first thing is, of course, organizationally for for me and and for Derek, we have to keep building the program. And the more people we are servicing, you know, the more time it takes. And so we are in the process of building uh, websites and creating platforms where this will be able to continue. Because if we keep growing, you know, it it can easily get out of hand. So that is our that is our. Um, mission is to make sure that we keep on finding platforms where singers can communicate with each other the only other thing i think that can happen is that people go back into um, let's call it like performance mentality where you have to pretend that everything is perfect that's exactly what I, I was like about to say that because I, I was thinking about it and I feel like a lot of the reason we haven't been this vulnerable before is because it's like you're in this mode of um, I have to hide all my weaknesses yes. and failures because I need to be able to do, you know, present myself the best to get a job, to work, um, right. to, to have that conductor like me. Um, and right. I think it, yeah, it is so, it's kind of, so counterproductive to be in that space um, I think that that is where like sports people have such a such an advantage over us in how they think about it. No, no young tennis player pretends that he's perfect in order to be able to play the game. You know, um, you can always play the game with whatever ability you have, and and knowing what you have to get better at should not keep you from playing the game, right? And yeah. and I, when you talk to basically any professional singer, the, their fears are real as well. Their insecurities are real as well. They also have, everybody has always something that they have to work on. And that is that is what I really hope that we can find is that Closing your eyes to what it is you need to work on is not constructive. Um, it does not, it either does not help you to get better as time progresses, but it also doesn't actually make for a strong performance because in fact, you are just kind of hiding those things, not only from the world, but also from yourself. And I think many singers have this kind of fraud uh, dreams, right? People will be like, oh, right, oh, I have a recurring dream. Somebody's going to find out that I actually don't know how to sing. Many artists have that kind of thing. And I think that if you are clear about where you are, if you are clear about measuring yourself, not against someone else, but against against what you perceive to be like being a good singer, and if you're clear about where you are on that road, then I think that you can go on stage and give a strong performance with what you have. Without, yeah, I really, I really believe that sports people do this successfully. Uh, if a, a tennis player will know my backhand is not as strong, if, and people will talk about it, right? People. Commentators will be, ooh, that backhand might break down today because that is not that person's strongest shot at the moment. But they play the game with their faults, and we have to do it as well, whether we want to admit it or not. That is part of, like, especially a young singer's life, is accepting that you are not perfect. In fact, will never be. 
one of my favorite topics in the world, that singing is not a game of perfect. You are never going to get perfect. So you better get comfortable in in progressing while still taking joy in, in singing on a daily basis. Yeah, I think it's been cool to see in the in this group, um, like the professional singers, some of whom I know of and admire, um, and just to see like, oh yeah, they're they're still working on their like their registration and their legato and their <laughs> their concerts and like, yeah, it, I, I, it's been really nice. I think um, especially when I was younger, like just just out of uh, university, like I I think I felt like, oh well, like the professionals have it all figured out and and when I get to that place <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna feel more confident but uh, I'm learning it's not about that it's about just accepting that you are not perfect and being able to still give what you have on stage and right right I think at, at the end of the day confidence comes from knowing yourself Mm -hmm. Confidence comes from knowing your abilities and understanding how to use them. And part of that means also understanding what it is you need to work on and being able to do so in like a positive way, which, you know, as you know, we have a lot of of emphasis from a psychological perspective on that. It's like saying the things we're working on, it's like not don't do this, don't do this, don't do this with my tongue, don't do this with my, you know, it's all based on like, okay, what do you do? Like what is a good habit to have and how do you create uh, that kind of positive um, moving forward with clarity of what it is you're doing, not judging yourself, but building towards like a clear goal. Yeah, and you meant you made a little reference to it, but we part of the um, things topics we covered in the group even before the like the official Vakai project started in June, we you, we read the uh, Golf is Not a Game of Perfect by Rotella. I can't remember his first name, but um, Bob. Bob Rotella, yeah, um, which is a great book. It's very short. Um, if anybody wants to read it, it's like quick, easy read. Um, I actually just did the audiobook because <laughs> I'm. <laughs> There you go. That works as well. Yeah. But I think one of the things that like blew my mind the most in that was he talks about practicing in trust mode, practicing as if it's your, as if you're performing and not criticizing. And I think I, or not even just criticizing, but not even analyzing really. Absolutely. And, and I, Absolutely. Think I just like never even considered that that was a way to practice. Cause I thought, well, practice is the time when you should be thinking about what you're doing and what you want to do better and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, could you talk a little bit more about that? That's been such yes. a helpful concept for me. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, it's kind of a mind blowing idea in the first place because mostly singers are taught that when you have your voice lesson your coachings or when you practice you're basically like taking things apart and you're like trying to like get better and then people say so then go on stage or go and sing your jury or your audition and then you know just enjoy it just trust it trust your work but in fact the body doesn't work like that if you spend the vast majority of your time by judging yourself and saying that wasn't good, I should do it like this instead of like this. And you keep on like um, only what Rotella calls work in the technique mode that is like taking stuff apart. You don't have in your DNA the ability to trust it because you have deconstructed your own method so much that you are not good at putting it together. So, and the body doesn't really work like that. You can, your brain cannot just tell, 
turn on a dime and be like, well, I spent the last three months telling myself that I was a bad singer and, you know, that I should do this better and I should do this better. And now I'm just going to trust. So a lot of a lot of the work we do, it has to do with what is a good positive thought. Now, I always, I always ask singers what they think when they sing. And they're always, they hang their heads in shame when they realize that I'm right when I say most singers change their minds on how they should sing based on how the previous phrase went. So people will sing a phrase and then during that phrase, they kind of judge themselves and then they change their minds. Then they say, you know, say, oh, my jaw was too tight. Then the second phrase they think about, like relaxing their jaw. Then they tell themselves, oh, my sound is falling back. I need to put it. So they're basically like reactionary singing Mm -hmm. is what I call like singing in disaster mode because you're always kind of trying to figure out what disaster is going to befall you and then you change your mind. That is a terrible place to be in. And that, in fact, is not technical thought, right? People think that is, oh, I think too much about technique. That isn't really thinking about technique at all. That is just judging your technique and saying, oh, this was wrong. Maybe I can try it this way. So the work I do has very much to do with saying what is a good technical thought. A good technical thought is something that you can plan, like something that you can execute and that is simple and that is repeatable. And that is really a good technical thought. It's always about like, what am I going to do next? And it's not a question to be answered on a phrase to phrase basis. You know how to sing and then you sing like that, right? so that and that has to be practiced you have to be like okay this is what i'm going to do and then you have to do it every time because that is how you learn to trust your process you cannot just work on process and never practice trusting it if that makes sense yeah could you maybe give like a a specific example of of that of thinking about you know what you're you're going to do Mm -hmm. right so um a lot of this stuff like i learned from sports psychology so in in sports they call it the pre-shot routine is like the thing that that a tennis player does before he serves or a basketball player does before he shoots a free throw um to name two examples and Sports people tend to have a very set pre-shot routine. They do the same thing every time. Um, So I always talk about Rafa Nadal because I'm like a big tennis fan, even though I'm a bigger Roger Federer fan. But Rafa Nadal (laughs) has a very pronounced pre-shot routine. He always dribbles the ball like many, 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 many times. And then he always puts his hair behind his ears. And then he pulls his underpants out, which is amusing. But he does it. (laughs) every time right and that is part of like his ritual and then once he engages in his in his serve motion it is the same every time right he can choose a different place where he's going to serve but then the motion is always the same so for a singer we always say that a good pre-shot routine has to do something with aiming like that is imagining the pitch you're going to sing and the ball and then releasing the body towards that so for different singers that can be different um and you have to experiment with what your pre-shot routine is so you could say for example imagine breathe go that would be like a simple like shot routine right it's like hear the pitch breathe go so if you tend to like not take a good breath you could think imagine 
open flow <laughs> or you know so i tend to have just like single words some people don't even have words it's just kind of like what i call like the escape button on the computer it's just like reset it's like always reset to the same position and go reset go so that you are you are functioning in a place where your body is free to execute what your ear is imagining if that makes any sense mm -hmm. yeah yeah um yeah, maybe we can switch gears a little bit now that we're sort of talking more, you know, this is a podcast for singers. So I've certainly learned a lot from you um, on all sorts of topics. We've been talking about practicing and sort of like the mindset that a singer goes into something with, which is something that I've definitely learned a lot from you. Um, and I'm curious then, you know, so on, on like the musical side of things, I feel like I've also, you know, through our work together, we did a, a program or I did a program with you at Teatro Nuovo that was focusing on Mozart role study. Um, and that was really eye-opening because I think artistically it allowed me to to open myself up to a different kind of expression with especially with Mozart which I think has a lot of we're just taught a lot of different things about what's appropriate for that style of music and uh, I'm very curious um, you know if you were just for people who don't know you haven't worked with you um, what advice you would give when a singer is approaching a style and they have a lot of you know different voices in their head of about what they should do with that style. Yes. Um, look, I we just got through COVID-19. I'm a huge Andrew Cuomo fan. And like <laughs> when he started doing his daily briefings, Derek texted me and was like, did you see Governor Cuomo with his like facts and opinions? And I'm like, yep. It was <laughs> like, I definitely was not the one who thought it up. But I think it's very important for singers um, to differentiate, differentiate. Uh, between, you know, English is not my first language. I'm just like making it up as I go along. Um, uh, it's very important to understand that there is a difference between a fact and an opinion. Okay. And it is very important to understand that not everything in our business is an opinion. I think that uh, singers are, are kind of misled often by being like, well, you know, some people do it like this and some people do it like that. And kind of very early on in your education as a singer, you start to think that anything goes. And that I think can be very frustrating for a young singer if he if he writes a check one after the other and you go here and this one tells you to sing an appoggiatura and then you go to like the next coach and you're like, don't sing an appoggiatura. Or somebody is like, oh, there's no such thing as portamento in Mozart. And then somebody else says, well, there is such a thing as portamento in Mozart. And then, you know, at what point do you throw your hands up in the air and go, well, you know, if anything is possible, then what am I doing here? And it's like wasting my time and my money having a lot of opinions. So like, how do you differentiate between like a fact and opinion? Well, you ask if somebody asks you to do a certain thing, you're like, why, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, that can be hard, especially if you're no longer in school because now you have to pay for all of that information, right? Somebody says to me, I asked someone to sing an appoggiatura and you're in a one-on-one -on -one coaching and somebody says, why? Well, I need about like two to three hours to really explain to you why and you probably don't have money for those two to three hours of explanation. And a lot of, because a lot of that research comes from books, recording, you know, all kinds of ways we 
we organize information so that we can say, okay, if we're in a science, if we were to say there are facts, what are the facts? And um, so my advice to singers would be a to find a place where you can get clarity about what the facts are. The Alcanto Bootcamp is trying to do that because that is the other thing that I discovered is a lot of singers who work with me have been um, subjected or uh, 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 have been introduced to some of these like historical facts um, quickly, like in a coaching, but I don't have time to really explain or really say, okay, let's read this article or let's really read this or let's listen to this recording. And I'm thrilled that at the Canto Boot Camp, I have much more opportunity to do that like online. A lot of people can get that information. And now if you come to a coaching, we can just kind of work and not get mired into this kind of nitty gritty of like, what is the style? Because it is true that people have lots of opinions and, um, Somebody once wrote on Facebook some years ago, uh, actually about the topic of the appoggiatura. She said, well, I had it from the horse's mouth that you shouldn't do appoggiaturas here and there. And I was like, well, which horse was that? And she named like a famous person. And I was like, well, that definitely is a horse, but that's the wrong horse for this course. Because <laughs> <laughs> right? we have this from the horse's mouth, but we also have the expression different horses for different courses. So just because you admire somebody does not mean that their information on the appoggiatura is necessarily correct historically, because they might have sung during a time when the appoggiatura was not so researched. And so I, th and, and I think it's important to understand that we can respect people who have different opinions but we can choose the people we get our facts from and we can we can prioritize the people who can really explain why mm -hmm. right so um, really explain why they want you to sing in a certain way because it is really based on historical fact and and i think that our business is moving more and more towards that yeah i think i think one of the things that um was eye-opening at Teatro Novo wasn't even just like the the facts themselves but just a different way of looking at it which is to say not thinking of it as like um what am I supposed to do but what is best you know what would people have done who were trying to make music in those time periods yeah. and like, I don't know, it's, it's so strange to me, but it seems like in, in school, we, it's almost like we look back at those time periods as if there was somebody during that time who was making rules um, about what you're supposed to do. But really, it was just people were making music yes. and they were trying to serve that music expressively, um, but they had maybe different ways a lot of it has to do with just a, a different way of notating something or a different way of... Right. I mean, the the question really when we talk about like historical performance practice for for an opera singer has to do with how, um, how in line all instruction used to be and how many different schools there were, right? And I think that we live in a time now where there are like a lot of different schools of like when I study with this teacher, they think this and that. And while there is always, of course, a little variation, when we really look at like the Alcanto treatises and how people used to teach, 
um, some very basic things like registration and dynamics and that kind of stuff. Um, when you really look at that up, up to like, let's say 1910, like, you know, during that whole, the whole period of like the Italian opera um, all the way to the, to, the, to the start of the 1900s, um, you see a lot of similarity when you read like the vocal treatises or you look at the exercise books, you see a lot of similarity, more similarity than difference, really. Um, you see that there was a kind of consensus about how voices were built, how um, there was a consensus about ornamentation, how that was used. There was a consensus about, um, yeah, how much ornamentation am I going to add? What kind of cadenza am I going to sing? And you see, like, um, you see a picture evolve from that that is not as um, as individualized in its instruction, but therefore was very individualized in the expression, right? Mm -hmm. um, so people didn't sing so many different ways, but they sang so freely with their voices that were trained in a kind of classical way. And um, for me, that's interesting, right? Because I think that um, people are now, oh, every voice is different. And I just wrote like on the Wakai group, it's like, yes, every voice absolutely is different, but that doesn't mean that each voice makes up its own technique. That is just how singers get confused. They're like, okay, I can never get good at singing because I don't actually know what that is because this person thinks my voice is this and this. All of those things are are part of like you as an individual, but there should be this part of like just so just like sports, right? Like all, every tennis player is going to have a slightly different serve, but they're all trained basically in the same way, right? There's a there's a basic consensus about what is a good tennis shot, like what is what is like a good legato interval, what is like a good C4 in chest voice, what is a good, you know, there is some, there is a basic consensus. And I think that has to be the starting point. And then you then it's easy to express your imagination because your instrument is functioning. Yeah, and that's what has been so great about the Vakai project is just that uh, we're talking about things on such a non like subjective level. It's actually very, you can, there's nothing, there's no question. Like you can say whether somebody is in head voice or chest voice, you can say where, whether somebody is vibrating that pitch or not. Right. Um, and which I think, you know, during this time when we're not in person with people, like, you know, there's only so much, you know, over zoom, obviously there's, you lose some nuance <laughs> of sound, right. but those things remain and it's it's nice to have also the, the time and space to work on those basics because none of us are you know having to perform next week you know absolutely and you know that's why uh, like the our a subtitle on our facebook group is bar class for singers right that's the other thing that we we can compare ourselves to is, is ballet dancers who it doesn't matter at what level they are performing whether they're in the court de ballet or if they're the prima ballerina or if you're like four years old and you're having your first classes or you are like an old retired dancer but you still take bar every day there's like certain exercises there are certain skills that a ballet dancer practices every morning of their life whether they have a performance in the evening or not and they have that kind of routine 
singers tend to not have that routine. Singers' routine tend to be, I wake up in the morning and they're like, oh, I don't know, it's like my voice doesn't work today. No, like, let that not be the first thing. Get to bar, do your basic exercises, and then, you know, some days your body feels better than other days. But if we can instill in singers this idea of, of like daily routines that will keep their voices conditioned the same way a ballet dancer keeps his or her body conditioned or the same way a tennis player or a sports person like go through their physical routine every day. So those are all the things that we're trying to help singers instill. And, and you know, the other thing about bar class is you do it with other people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you show up to class and you do it with other people. So community, I would say, is the most important thing for me of this new venture of mine. Mm -hmm. Um, another thing that the group has focused a lot on is Italian diction, Italian, just understanding the language. Um, so do you have any, um, you know, for our listeners, just any advice in a nutshell about or things that you feel like are lacking in our educations about Italian yes. diction and Italian libretti? Right. Firstly, I would say IPA is not a language. Mm -hmm. Being able to IPA your aria might have given you like a 4.0 average in school but that doesn't make you good at singing that language or singing that language with meaning and understanding um, the one thing that is taught in basically no school that I know of is that poetry should be part of your understanding of diction um, that means Everything you sing as a classical singer, including recitative, that's a story for another podcast, or you should come to the Alcantara Bootcamp. Um, <laughs> everything you sing, including recitative, is a verse form and it stands like verse. Most singers are like, I'm going to speak my text and I'm going to speak it like in the rhythm of, of the music. Regnava nel silenzio. And they're like... My singers never speak in the rhythm that is written by the composer because that is just like a guide. The, your, the way for you to really find expression in your text is to find what we call poetic meter. Then silencio. You want it to because then you feel like Italian. If you speak your poem, yeah, it's like devieni non tardaro gioia bella. That happens to be pretty close to what Mozart has written because it's written in 6-8 time. But that's not true for all, all arias, right? Vedrai carino, not vedrai carino, right? Mm -hmm. If you just kind of speak like a child in like one, two, three, one, two, three, you're not really feeling the expression of the text because you have skipped this essential step, which is poetic meter and how that's that leads you in the language through your aria. So that's the number one thing I would say singers can do. Uh, if you don't know, like, you know, the, you can join us. We talk about it a lot. Like you can join our, our fall project. We're going to probably run it in, in the fall again. You can join our Facebook group. There's some stuff there that we, pay, mm -hmm. we post while we're in the Vakai session. Um, or, or, you know, you talk to somebody who knows about Italian poetry. They can be tricky to find these people, right? Because there are a lot of people who do diction, but not a lot of people who do diction really understand the archaic Italian um, poetic forms. But I, in my experience, that is the thing that changes someone the most, like from an Italian perspective. It also is true, true in other languages, but I, I think it's especially Italian. 
And from a musical perspective, I think it changed. I mean, for me, it's just, I mean, knowing the, knowing about the poetic meter and practicing the text that way has changed the musical choices I make because part of musicality is not, you know, is not literally doing every eighth note as written on the page, but just finding that, finding that text. And if you don't know the poetic sort of rhythm, it's hard to make those choices. Exactly, exactly. You're kind of like looking for a generic way of being musical, but you're kind of missing, you know, we're all always talking about communicating. Well, how much time do you actually spend with your text? You know, you're not just communicating on some subliminal level that has no meaning. That's what a pianist does. Mm -hmm. But when you're a singer, you're singing words that has a direct meaning. Everything in the world is not subtext, right? Like, Subtext really comes from what happens when the audience hears the text. So um, subtext is like one of the, my, big old, my big old evils. I hate talking about subtext because I think that it takes singers away from the text. In the perfect performance world, using the text and the audience creates the subtext, right? That, that is what happens when we read a book, right? We are, we are experiencing the feeling of the of the character we're reading through reading her words. The, she's not telling us like in subtext what she's feeling. She's saying something and then we fill in the emotional side. And, and I think that in modern ideas of performance, singers are taught all the time to like feel for the audience. You know, you say these words, but they're not so important. You know, what's the emotion behind the words? But then you kind of like skip the step of actually saying the words with meaning because you are set in like I have to feel sad because my words are sad no say the words and let the audience experience the sadness of your words don't just try and communicate in a kind of hippie way <laughs> your emotion say the word with the meaning and that is what brings the emotion to the audience is, is what you think also the subtext is in part provided by the composer and what Absolutely. I mean, you know, subtext, subtext is, subtext is like, is part of, for me, is part of the magic. It is part of the magic of the live music moment. It's not something that you make happen. Mm -hmm. It is something that, that happens. It happens because of the sound of the music, of the key, of the text, of the singer's voice singing it. But as, as performing artists, it is not our job to be the audience. It is our job to make the art form come alive, right? Our audience cannot stare at a score and feel something. Like they can go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and stand in front of a work of art, right? That is why we are called performing artists, because the art form in which we engage, I mean, this is probably like very like, base level, but I don't think we spend enough time thinking about it. Our art form does not exist until it is performed, and therefore we are part of the making the work of art come alive so that other people can watch, listen, and be emotionally um, touched, uh, moved, influenced, but that is really our, our goal must be for the audience audience to feel that, not for the audience to feel something because you feel so much. Does that make sense? It's yeah. like maybe a little bit of semantics, but I think if we stay truer in just bringing the work alive, work to life, 
then I think that we do a better job of like inviting our audience to be emotionally involved and not just like voyeurs watching our emotion. Right. You're trying to sort of be open uh, and like allowing them to come in and see what you're doing and not trying to sort of push something onto them or. Right, right, right. Because we're often like, I think singers often like, what do you want the audience to feel? Well, you know, you cannot make someone feel something. There might be an audience member who's going through a really tough time in their life and they hear a particular poem piece of music and it touches them in a completely specific way. Then there might be somebody else who just had a huge fight with her husband. She isn't like touching a completely different way. That is the whole point and the beauty of art is that the audience should be able to experience it like from where they are and if you are like one dimensionally like pushing your personality in front of that and the audience can only see like one kind of version of it I think that it is emotional in a way right it's emotional in the way you see like a character on television being destroyed by something like the death of their mother right and that's a very sad thing but you can see that and and you can think about it as great acting you don't necessarily cry yourself the great actor like like allows you to be that and that it's not how well they cry it is how you want to cry with that character that that character might not cry at all but yeah. you cry I think it's the vulnerability, I think, is um, part of it. Just just being um, present enough in yourself on stage that it allows someone to see something. Right, and being really in the moment, you know, not not trying to control someone else's emotion. That's not our job. Our job is not to control the audience's emotion. Our job is, like, to be in the moment of the creating of the musical work because right that's the other crazy thing about what we do it's not even like we are making a painting and now the audience can watch it mm-hmm. in the moment it is created it also disappears right mm-hmm. our work of art really only exists like from second to second like we are not painting a picture and the audience is not touched by phrase a after you've sung phrase d you have to take right. that on that journey all the time and if you are not present in it then the audience cannot be present with you what does presence mean for a singer letting that breath flow really because that is how that is how we communicate with each other we never believe somebody when they stop and start because we think oh they're lying they're making up words as it comes along but as the breath flows as the legato line flows out of the singer's body that is when the audience like gets caught up in that in in the flow of the music i think that's very hippie talk, but <laughs> I, I, I think it makes perfect sense. Um, and I think it's actually, it's interesting. It's something that's kind of been hard about the time we're in now is that the only way, I mean, pretty much the only way to still be performing for people is to record something and mm-hmm. put it on the internet. And it's, it's different. It's just really different from what we yeah. normally do. Normally we, you know, in a, in an ideal setting, we are just like letting it flow and being in the moment and let in that moment goes by and it doesn't happen again. And whatever has happened is just right. part of that experience that everyone collectively gets to share in. But now it's so, it's just very different. And I'm curious if you have advice to, to singers who are trying to keep performing or, or even just what, where you think our art form 
should go after this or right. as we come out of it? I mean, I would say like if you're if you're a student of history, you know that the world has gone through terrible things before, terrible things that shut down uh, society. And you'll know that art always came back strong after that, stronger, um, because when people are cut off from each other, then the moment when they are together uh, becomes stronger. If you love music, but you have not been able to experience it live, you will love it even more when it's over and it will be over. Um, as far as like performing online, I myself with my organization has chosen not to make that a big part of our mission right. because I feel it, that it's just kind of like a placeholder. And to me, like placeholding art makes me sad. That's not true for everybody, but for me it is. And that's why I'm trying to inspire singers to say, well, let's just use the time to get really friggin' good at, at doing what we do so that when we open up, when the theaters open up, we will stand strong and proud with like an improved uh, version of ourselves stronger singers, stronger and sec more secure technically, um, with, with all the breaths in the world dying to flow out of our bodies to reach our audiences. And for me, that, that, is, that is the most important thing. Now, if you're, if you're a young professional singer or you're a professional singer who was just, you know, just before COVID just hit it big. And like now, of course, you, you're talking to your publicist and it's all about like keeping your brand alive and that people won't forget that you exist. And that's, I think, a different thing. A lot of singers are engaging in a lot of social media at the moment. I'm not sure that that's the most important thing for a young singer um, mm -hmm. who does not really have a brand to protect um, no, you could become just like a famous internet brand, right? There's been weird stuff. I know the singer who got famous for singing, like with the toilet paper rolls. You know about that? There was oh, oh, I, I don't know the singer. <laughs> yes, she used to coach with me. <laughs> what aria was it? Do you remember? Um, she was singing. Was it in Cuesta Regia? Or not? I. Or was it? Was it Tosca? Or was it Tosca? I think Tosca might have been like the second one. She made different oh, ones. Oh, she made different ones. Okay, I might have only seen the Tosca. She made different ones, yeah. Um, <laughs> she has uh, Christina Davis, I think is her married name now. Um, so, you know, like she made like a fun video and yeah. hundreds of thousands of people watched it. And, you know, so that's like a weird like internet thing. So you could you could do that and have fun with that. Um, but I think that in the in the real world, uh, opera will come back. Um, my organization is trying to look very hard at what can we do better? What can we do more efficiently? But there are certain things that will never change when it comes to opera. There will always have to be a stage with singers singing, with the orchestra in the pit, with the audience watching. And um, I personally have no interest in reimagining the opera stage, because for me, that will no longer be opera. Once we are talking to each other through microphones, we are no longer engaging in air that comes acoustically to the audiences here. Mm -hmm. So for me, that that isn't going to change. It shouldn't change. Um, can we do other things more effectively online? Yes. I, you know, I was just talking about how I find it fascinating that I think that I can maybe teach restative style more effectively online because I can give people more information 
than I can normally dole out on an hour-to-hour basis in my studio in New York. So, you know, for me, that is the interesting thing that, that I've learned, COVID made me learn which parts of, of what I bring to a singer's life can, in fact, effectively be taught online um, and that, that can, in fact, be available for a singer to, like, refer to more effectively than just like our live coaching. Um, My advice to young singers would be the same advice I have for all singers. Mm -hmm. When you have time, get good. Get really good. And if you think you're good, get better. Because that if you really love singing and if you really love music, your number one job is to be as good and as effective vocally as you can be so that your imagination will come out of your throat right i think that the saddest thing in the world is a singer that imagines how a phrase should go but they cannot sing it like that because Mm -hmm. the voice cracks or the chest voice doesn't come in or you know for whatever or they are not good at diction so i can't understand the words so they're imagining something but it's not really coming to me so i think that is that is our biggest job as artists is to use this one thing that we never have, which is, which is time. Mm-hmm. And also in terms of audience engagement after this is all done, um, I think it's really interesting that there are, you, you just mentioned that there are people in the group that are not actually singers themselves or not professional singers, but are just interested in the process. And I think it's a really cool thing to invite the audience into our process um and i'm curious like what have you gotten any feedback from any of these people and what what is it like yes um people are enjoying it so it's a it's a new part of like what we're doing and we're hoping in the fall to really launch it in a bigger way and i will need like you and your your audience and all all people in the opera businesses help because audience members are not really used to being engaged in this way but you know like the metropolitan opera has suspended their the full part of their season all the big opera houses has basically done that i just heard that canadian opera company suspended their season Mm -hmm. so not only are singers um, not have the ability to perform, but our audience members don't have the ability to go to the opera house either. And so we are going to work very hard to try and find ways to help opera lovers engage with singers, engage with opera, elevate their ability to talk about it, to listen um, to it. Like, you know, sports fans love talking sports. They just love it. They love after like the football game sitting and be like, well, you know, if they did this and this, you know, like Monday morning uh, football talk or, and all sports are like that. Every big sports fan really think that they know everything about the technique of their sport. But that's not true really of opera fans because they've, they're kind of left out of that part of it and are our um, discourse about art is not as sophisticated as it used to be before Netflix, right? <laughs> like people used to go to like salons and hear people talk about all kinds of topics. Now I guess we have TED Talk, right? TED Talk is like the old, the old-fashioned <laughs> way of like going to a salon. But um, I feel that in the world that we live in, people are extremely smart 
about like whatever their job is, whether, you know, it's marketing or and they can talk like in the most detailed way. But, but people are not so educated like in the cultural parts of life. Um, so opera singer, opera fan might not know what chest voice and head voice is. He knows kind of what he likes when he hears it. But I'm interested in seeing what would happen if we use our time to to also reach out to our audience and make them more part of what it is we do, allow them to see what it is we do. Every tennis fan loves watching uh, practice sessions. You know, we go all the time. If you go to the US Open, you go early in the morning and you go to the practice net so you can see people practice. You see how they go through those routines. And I love that idea that, you, you know, I think that in fact, by demystifying the process, we really humanize um, the opera singer. And I think that, I think that is a good thing in, in, in our world. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people, especially people who are maybe even haven't ever gone to an opera, I think a lot of them might be more interested if they understood that like an athlete involves this high level of training and there's there's like um, interesting differences between how one person sings an aria and how another person sings an aria. I just think that's so exciting because I I think a lot of people I don't know I think we just we're so used to um, having all this stuff so easily, you know, we can go on YouTube, um, we can go on Spotify and hear a million different kinds of music and different artists, but we don't see anymore the the process. I don't know that we ever did so much, but, um, but yeah, I think, it, I think it would engage like even just like younger people who. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I hope that all the Bakai people for the fall will invite their grandmothers and their fathers and their boyfriends and, and, you know, fans, people who to, to join us, like, like in our community and kind of be part of that because that's also where support comes from, right? It's like, if you, it's easy to support something if you understand it and if you're passionate about the people and you see the hard work, right? It's like to think about when we watch Olympics, we always have these pieces before about like where that athlete comes from, right? How, how he comes from a family that are not athletes and how we really had to learn and how this person helped him and this program. And there's something about that that is very human when we see somebody do something that's really hard, but to see how how they are people who do these extraordinary things with their voices. So I'm excited about like, you know, trying to help my community also from an audience building perspective. And to learn that it is like an extraordinary thing and a, well, a highly trained thing. And it's not just like we were born. Absolutely. <laughs> and then we just, you know, woke up one day and sang like this. <laughs> right, right. I just, I thought I would just be, yeah. And I think, you know, because everybody has a voice, everybody can sing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also, you know, you can on the one hand say everybody can sing. So they think it's just, you know, you just can sing. But on the other hand, if you really take half a second to explain to people what it means being able to sing over an orchestra with one single voice, they're like, hmm, okay, that's interesting. Because everybody has a voice, I I think everybody has uh, the ability to understand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like I want to build out, not just talking about singing, but allowing amateurs to sing and to train with us. The non-vocational group has been really fascinating. There are people who sing actually pretty well, but they don't they don't consider themselves professional because they have other jobs or conductors who have never who don't have to sing, but they want to understand more. Um, so, and that's the other thing in the old days, right? And 
people sang and played instruments because no Netflix. I have nothing against Netflix. It's like your podcast is never going to be able to be sponsored by Netflix. <laughs> I have nothing against them. But, you know, so when we didn't have all of the, when we didn't have the ability to just lie on the couch and watch a screen, like we engaged in all kinds of activities that, that made things like, like art and, and opera more accessible to us because we knew more about it. It's interesting. I think people are doing some more of those, like just people are engaging more in hobbies like that because some people, not everyone, obviously yes. people are working, but some people have more hours in the day and they're just like, well, I can't watch Netflix all day. Well, so. Think about all the hundreds of people who've never made a cup of coffee in New York or now baking bread. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's baking bread, right? Because they have extra time. Well, you know, maybe everybody can just like think about opera a little and have <laughs> Learn how to learn how to sing uh, legato. <laughs> right, exactly. There are so many fun things that this time has has brought us, like uh, abilities to think in different ways about different things. Except for the one part about like singing with an orchestra in a theater. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. I know. And that part we all miss. <laughs> we, all, we all miss. But oh, man, it's coming, going to come back. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. I can't wait for my first evening sitting in a in an opera house and listening to my singers sing. I can't. I can't wait. I can't taste it. It's going to be amazing. We're going to have incredible party afterwards. I can see it in front of me. It is coming. It is coming. I know it. Well, that's a nice, um, hopeful note to, to end our conversation on. I do have, though, some little, like, fun questions that I'm going to try. Okay, what is your favorite non-classical album or artist? Um, Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell, like, what is that? No, I can't remember the album. It's on Spotify. <laughs> it's the, the late album that she made that all her big hits are, are orchestrated. It's super cool. She did it when she was older, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, it, I think that album makes an appearance in Love Actually. Yeah, I think that's right. That's like the album that, that uh, Emma Thompson's character gets for Christmas, I think. From I, it's an amazing <laughs> album. I love it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, also, okay, here's like a, a little would you rather question. Uh -huh. Would you rather only be able to work on the same opera for the rest of your life, but with different casts and like anywhere in the world, or you can work on any opera you want, but only with like the same handful of people and in the same place for the rest of your life? I would have to pick the second one. So same people. Different yeah, yeah. Having having like a group of people who, because I think that that kind of group of people would make a good community of like having a shared language, and then we can do all kinds of operas. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's almost like, well, I guess Germany's system gets a little more of that just because you yes. work with people, the same people for our, you know, exactly. Yeah. But cool. Um, if you if you weren't doing anything in the field of music or theater or anything like that, what do you think you would do? Lawyer. Oh, really? <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> never, ever, there was never, ever, like, a law series on television that I didn't think was the best thing ever. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's cool. Um, okay, if you, but if you could, if you only could pick one opera to work on the rest of your life, what opera do you think it would be? <laughs> oh, that is so hard. 
That is the hardest question ever. Well, well I'll, I'll say, I mean, it's a little easier for me because I'm at least limited by, you know, what you would say. Yeah. But, um, and also, I'm, at this point, I'm limited by what I, I have sung in, I think, uh-huh. I know. But I think I might pick uh, Barbara Seville just because there's so much room to play. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why La Traviata keeps coming in my head. La Traviata is an amazing opera because it really is a bel canto opera with this kind of like very real, very small story. Mm. I'm interested in, and I think that it, that it brings, but I just, I know I want to take it back. I don't, I can't really pick one up. <laughs> I know. <it's laughs> very good question. A little hard. I always have a hard time choosing one of anything. Um, if, oh, well, I think I know the answer to this, but if you were a professional athlete, what sport would you do? Uh, tennis. Tennis, <laughs> I figured. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure, Emily. It was great to talk to you. I always love talking to you, whether you're singing or or having a conversation about things. It's always nice to talk to you, and I'll come back whenever you need me. Thank you. Well, I will uh, probably take you up on that. So. Oh, good. Well, that's the first episode of The Yap. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, a few follow-up notes about Belcanto Boot Camp. Their fall course begins this coming Monday, that's September 7th. The website is belcantobootcamp.com, and you can also find the sign-up link in our episode notes. In addition to the Bakai program, Belcanto Boot Camp is also offering an Italian class this fall that's focused specifically on the kind of poetic language you find in opera libretti, which I'm super excited about. Um, and just speaking from my own experience, I really had a great time doing the program this summer. Um, they're just the community has been so nice. Um, the singers are have all been super supportive of each other, and it's just been really a great way to stay motivated and connected to people in the business. And um, I can't speak highly of it enough. So for what it's worth, I hope you'll check it out. Next time on the app, we talk with young singer Jermaine Woodard Jr. and singer, conductor, and educator Kaylin Marcel Manson about the issues of race, inclusivity, and community outreach in opera. Kaylin is working on a new opera company modeled after the fest houses in Germany that will address these injustices while also finding a business model that will pay its artists a salary. Super exciting. It was a really inspiring discussion. Um, it really changed the way I look at a lot of aspects of our business and left me feeling actually really hopeful for the possibilities for change that we have right now. So I really look forward to sharing this episode and this conversation with you next week. So I hope you enjoyed the first episode. If you want to help us grow, please share this podcast with a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. And, of course, make sure you're subscribed so you'll be notified next week when the next episode drops. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Young Artist Podcast for more content. I want to give a huge special thanks to Nick Gish for composing and producing our fabulous theme music and to Rachel Abrams for designing our beautiful logo. Thanks, guys. I'm really grateful for your help, and I couldn't have done it without you. All right, well, that's the show, guys. Be well, sing pretty, and I'll see you next time on The Yap.